Open your Bibles, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. And I think we've got some folks here from the Praying Pelican team, correct? Am I correct? We do? We don't. We do. We don't. Okay. Well, I was going to welcome them, but they're somewhere else this morning. That's cool. But to our visitors, we hope you feel welcome. All right. Um, just a few quick words of review to catch up any that haven't been with us. Um, we began this study in Corinth, noting Corinth's unique position um, and why its location made it a very prosperous city, but it also made it a city with a lot of serious problems. Um, its location meant there were a lot of different influences, uh, especially uh, this 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 mixing of Greek philosophy and pagan ideas that just flourished in Corinth. And of course, that became a character of the city. And when it's a character of the city, it's going to be a character of the church. That's just the way it works. And problems developed in the church because of that. And the first one that we addressed in this letter, or the first one the Apostle Paul addresses, is the divided nature of the church. Um, and that wasn't just the first problem that he addressed. Um, but that divided nat nature, all those divisions, factions in the church are uh, reflected an underlying problem. And we talked about that when we get to chapter one and how that underlying problem uh, carries through the whole letter. It's, and we're certainly going to see that uh, in chapter six. We saw it in chapter five. If you recall, back in chapter five last week, uh, it starts off sounding like he's going to talk about sexual immorality. That's the first thing he talks about. It certainly gets our, our attention. And he said it had the attention of the pagans in town because the, they were doing stuff even the pagans wouldn't do. Um, but then immediately he goes in the second verse to another problem. That the issue of, of immorality wasn't his main concern. In the second verse, he steps into the issue of the fact that the church wasn't concerned about the immorality. In fact, they were proud of it. And for Paul, that's the bigger problem. And he spends the rest of the chapter focusing on that issue. I mean, it, he says they're puffed up. It's the word he used. They were puffed up with pride uh, about their, their sexual sin. And um, I mean, it's one thing to ignore it, but it's another thing to be proud of it. And um, we asked the question, well, how could that happen? How could a church, Bible-believing church, be proud of, of sin? And what we found in that, again, going back to that, that climate that the Corinthian church began in, we talked about um, a way of thinking of philosophy, and it had a formal name. It was called Gnosticism, but it, it didn't always introduce itself under that name. It just was a way people were starting to think uh, that was dualistic in nature. We talked about this last week. And the idea was, you know, the flesh is inherently bad, and the spirit is inherently good. And you follow that far enough, you know, the flesh is inherently bad, and it's inherently temporal. It's going to return to dust. It's going to be gone before long. And so ultimately you conclude that it doesn't matter what I do with it. I mean, if it's just going to go, just decay and fall away anyway, it doesn't matter what I do with it. And that kind of thinking slid into the church because, you know, the Bible does talk about the flesh and the spirit war against one another. It's really easy to buy into that kind of thing. Of course, it's wrong. The Bible never teaches that the flesh is inherently bad. After all, this stuff, if we mean this stuff, tissue, organic stuff by the word flesh, that, where did we get that? We got that from God. 
It's a gift of God. And Jesus, we're told, came in the flesh. So flesh can't be inherently bad. When the Bible talks about the carnal flesh, that's talking about that sin nature within us, not the actual tissue. The tissue is where the battle is fought. The members of our body, it's where the battle is fought. And we can't say that spirit is inherently good because there are unclean demonic spirits that were talked about in Scripture as well. So neither one is inherently one way or the other. That dualistic thinking really laid a trap for the Corinthians, and, and they walked right into it. And the point that we learned, again, this is review from last week, is that how we think has tremendous influence in what we end up doing. Book of Proverbs, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Right? So you can say you believe whatever you believe, but it's how you think deep inside that eventually manifests itself in what you do. That same issue carries into chapter 6 even though it's going to sound like Paul's on a whole new issue because he starts talking about lawsuits, of all things. Again, sounds an awful lot like us, right? Church today, right? It starts about talking about lawsuits, and then in the middle of the chapter, he's got this big section where he talks about this whole matter of our thinking, and then at the end of the chapter, he cycles back to the whole issue of sexual immorality. So you see, he hasn't left, left the topic. He's still on that same topic. So um, let's just go through the chapter. Again, I'd like to go through the beginning and the end kind of quickly and really focus on that big section in the middle before we talk about application. But let's begin at the top of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in the first verse. Paul writes, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And let's pray before we go any farther. Lord, we thank you for your word. In it, Lord, we have light, we have life, the nourishment for our soul, Father, uh, a, a lamp to our feet, Lord. All that we need to um, walk in godliness, Father, is found there. And so we just pray this morning that our hearts and minds would be open, not to the thoughts of man, but to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So some in the church in, in Corinth um, were taking other believers in the church to court, evidently in, in civil matters. So they were going before a government court. Now, as far-fetched as that may sound, a lot of this passage just sounds off the wall. And, and for Paul, he is incredulous at what is happening. In fact, in the second verse, he says, how dare you do this, right? As far-fetched as it sounds, it happens. So this kind of thing is real. I mean, mind-blowing, mind-blowing, but real, right? And Paul, again, he finds it the height of irresponsibility. The word that he uses when he says, how dare you, in verse 2, um, the word that he uses is tomaos, and it means to just, like, cast off regard for consequences. It can be, it can be a good word. Somebody does something really brave. They just cast, throw, you know, throw caution to the wind and do something great. Or you can do something really stupid. You know, just throw caution to the wind and go out and do something. This was the second category. And Paul is incredible. How can you possibly do this, right? Um, it's, it's irresponsible. It completely disregards both the authority and the legitimacy of the church. Uh, if you drop down to verse 7, Paul says, I say this to your shame. Is there no one among you, is there no one wise man among you who will be able to decide 
between his brethren. Wow. You don't have anybody smart enough in the church to settle this matter? So you have to go to a civil court? How embarrassing. Verse 6, but brother goes to brother, goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. There's just a whole bunch of problems here. Uh, the whole idea of brother opposing brother, um, again, if we understand that we're in fact brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, this should not happen. Right? I, I know people within this body that have had to handle legal matters in court involving family matters. It's horrific, and it shouldn't happen. And if it does happen, why can't you resolve it within the family, within the church, right? It destroys the church's testimony. It tells the world that we as unbelievers aren't fit to take care of our own stuff. And when it does happen, he says in verse 7 and 8, when it happens, guess who loses? Everybody. Both sides lose. doesn't matter who wins the suit, both sides lose. Years ago, I had a matter in our own family that it never got anywhere near this point, but I was concerned it might. So just to make sure I was covering my bases, I went to a lawyer. Kind of picked him on a recommendation. Never met the guy before. The guy was a genius. So I sat before the lawyer, paid him 100 bucks for an hour of his time or half an hour of time. I don't remember how much I got. But I laid the whole thing out for him, and I so appreciated this guy. He said, it sounds to me like you need to just do the family politics. He said, yeah, you can pay me another couple hundred bucks and I'll write a letter for you. It won't do any good. Work the family politics. Yeah, that's what it is, but you're much better off doing it at that level than having me write you a letter. Really appreciated the wisdom the guy, the guy shared, right? Because when it gets outside the family, everybody loses, right? Verses 10 and 11, Paul moves to the, uh, the larger issues, right? That's where I want to spend our time. He talks about the fact that, um, let me back up here, um, verses 9, 10, 11, I'm sorry. Paul says this, do you not know that the righteous shall not, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he just takes like that whole slate of sins, right? He's moved from the, the, the focus on sexual sin to the whole slate of sin. And he says, people whose lives are characterized by that do not inherit eternity. It's an absolute statement. And then he says this in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. This 11th verse is so critical. Remember, he's still speaking to the larger issue of the unity in the church and the underlying causes that have divided the church. He's still speaking to that. that that's the large issue he's still speaking about. And he says this. This is what I want the, the visual to get, guys. He said, you were all washed. So the two people that went into court, or however many went into court with the suit, I want you to get the visual, guys. You were both washed by the blood of Christ. Your sins were forgiven because of the blood of Christ. You were brought into a family relationship by the blood of Christ. You were both washed of your sins. You were both sanctified by the presence and power of... So the same Holy Spirit that sanctified A sanctifies B. 
You're both indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, brought into a state of sanctification. You're both holy beings. You can both be described as saints, despite your behavior. Why? Because of the indwelling of the same Holy Spirit, right? And you were justified, brought into right relationship with God. So you are brothers before God. And what do you do with that? You go into a court and sue one another. What about that makes sense? None of it. None of it makes sense. Do we get why the apostle is incredulous? It's clear that somebody, in fact, both parties, just are not thinking correctly because if they were thinking correctly, just like those two parties in the Greek lawsuit, they would have never found themselves in the court. So the judge was saying, how'd you guys get here? From what I understand about what you believe, you don't belong here. Somebody's not thinking correctly, right? And I think what's also really uh, significant is that Paul adds this phrase at the end of verse 11, right? When he talks about their sanctification, their redemption, they're being washed. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Stressing the unity, the unity of redemption, the unity out in salvation, the unity in our sanctification within God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always on the same page. One of the things Jesus made clear, I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen... Jesus and the Father are always on the same page. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are always on the same page. What we're now seeing in this church makes about as much sense, and I know the illustration is absurd, but that's the whole point. What we're seeing going on in the Corinthian church is just about the same as about two-thirds of the way through Jesus' ministry, him saying, you know what, I didn't bargain on any of this. I was not told I was going to have to deal with people like you. In fact, it's nowhere in my contract. So guess what? I'm suing. I'm going to sue the father because he undersold the job. I mean, it's absurd. But that is exactly what's going on in the Corinthian church. Right? Again, Paul's incredulous, right? The very idea. Verse 12 looks at first to be a total change of direction, right? And this is where you got to remember one of the things we said back in the first week. A lot of the things Paul will say in this letter actually aren't Paul's words, it's their words. And he quotes it before he refutes it, right? Verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. That expression, all things are lawful for me, put that in quotation marks. He's most likely quoting them. And he's also responding with classic rabbinical methodology. He's not just saying, no, you're wrong, although they're wrong. He's saying, okay, you say that. And let's say for purposes of argumentation, you're right. Let's say that it is technically correct that all things are lawful. On the other hand, are all things profitable? No. On the other hand, although all things may indeed be lawful, do you want to allow yourself to be mastered by something? So he's showing them the flaw in their thinking. First he quotes them, then he refutes them, right? In fact, what he's doing is confronting that very dualistic thinking he was speaking of. Why are all things lawful for me? Because it doesn't matter what I do with this body. It doesn't matter what I do with this body because it's, it's carnal anyway, it's destined to perish, doesn't really matter, right? 
Only my spirit continues on. So what I do with my body doesn't matter. That is the justification for sexual immorality and every other immorality on that list. What I do in this body just doesn't matter. Note, though, rather than engage in some meaningless debate about some philosophy, Paul goes right to the effect. Do you really want to do something that's going to harm your body? Even if all things are lawful, I don't want to do them. Verses 13 and 14, Paul continues that same argument. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Also likely their words, right? But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That may be the single most important statement in the entire chapter. The Lord is for the body. Maybe you think your physical body doesn't matter. God doesn't share that opinion. The Lord is much concerned about your physical body. And then he ups the ante in verse 14. God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. He is going to raise that physical body. That's how much he has invested in it. We will experience a bodily resurrection. So if you're into dualism, you know, the spirit's good, the, the flesh is bad, game's over. Paul just shut that argument down. Because God is absolutely concerned with what we do with and what happens to our physical bodies. And if you think that's a far-fetched idea, if you think my suggesting that Paul is saying, people even in, in Corinth are actually saying what happens to our body really doesn't matter because it's not of consequence. Turning your Bibles over to Acts chapter 17. This puts it in real time. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. And what do we find in Athens? The smartest people in the empire, right? Smartest people in the world are in Athens, right? By the way, my family is not from Athens. We're from a small village in Peloponnesos. We're not from Athens, okay? But the Athenians are convinced that's where the smartest people in the world live, right? So Paul is, is in Athens, and he's been preaching away, and he finds himself standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which is where all the great intellectual minds of Athens both you know, educationally, governmentally, they all come together. And it literally was the intellectual center of the empire. If you were a wealthy Roman family and you wanted to send your kid to college, you sent him to Athens, right? This is where all the brains are supposed to be, okay? And, and Paul is, is preaching to these people. And he, he's just preaching away. He's talking about the altar to the unknown God and all that stuff, right? And then he says this. Um, drop on down to verse, oh, let's go to verse 30, right? Uh, yeah, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, again, he's reflecting back on the altar to the unknown God, Paul says, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Right? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now look carefully. The minute Paul says, by raising him from the dead, what happens immediately after that? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, verse 32, some began to sneer. Some began to mock. They found his words foolish. Why? It wasn't that they didn't believe in the possibility of resurrection, because Roman and Greek religion was full of that. 
Now, it wasn't that they didn't believe in the possibility of the resurrection. In their thinking, why would anybody want it? And why would, a, why would a good and just God do that to us? After all, aren't we trying to shed this carnal, limited tent in which we live, and in the case of the Greeks, let our intellect ascend? Or in the case of the Corinthians, let our spirit ascend? They completely bought into the idea that what happens to this tent doesn't matter because it's temporal. All that matters is what I do with my spirit. So I can take this body and I can go off and engage in all kinds of sin, sinful behavior, and that's okay because it's my spirit that really counts, right? Paul confronts it, and not just the problems it causes. The very idea, this dualistic thinking, and let's face it, are we really that different today? You know, you hang around Christians, what do you hear? Right? I can do this, but I'm okay because I still believe in God, right? I, I, I still, you know, worship God. I'm okay. I can go do this stuff, right? Same kind of thing here, right? Get back to 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul now begins to talk about the significance of what happens when we buy into this idea. That what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Let your mind dwell on that one for a minute. This physical form, limited, flawed, weak, temporal, it's going to end up in dust in the ground or spread across the ocean as ashes, however my family chooses to dispose of it, right? It's finite by every definition, right? And yet it is something that God is so concerned about. In the present existence, our physical bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two become one flesh. Verse 17, for the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. But there's not a distinction there. If you stop there, we could say, well, there's a distinction, but there's not. Because in the very next verse, he says, flee immorality. This is a feet don't fail me now moment. When confronted with the opportunity to indulge the carnal flesh, Paul says, run. Here's why. Every other sin a man commits is outside of his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Everything God tells us not to do, right? And I'm not talking about some of the details of the Levitical law in the Old Testament where he said, don't wear two kinds of clothes because he was making a point about God's nature, not about us. Everything God tells us, don't do this, right? If we do it, it hurts us. The stuff God says, don't do, if we do it, it hurts us. And the stuff he says to do, if we don't do it, it hurts us. Everything he wrote was for our welfare, for our protection, right? And then he says this in verse 19, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You have from God our physical tent, flawed as it may be, weak as it may be, temple, is nonetheless a gift from God. And you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. It makes no sense to engage in any practice that does me physical harm or spiritual harm. Sin always does, right? Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now back in chapter 3, he told them the church was a temple of the living God. Now he says your own body is a temple of the living God because it's indwelt by the Spirit. Not because it's made of stone or has a sign on the door, but because it's indwelt by the Spirit of God. Right? 
You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It is a direct confrontation to the dualistic thinking that the body is bad and the spirit is inherently good, and it's a call to holy living. And here's the amazing thing. This is actually an amazing text. Usually when you read something in the text that says, don't do this, if you look at it carefully, there's an amazing positive buried in there. And that's true here. It's an amazing positive here. Think about this phrase just for a moment. Glorify God in your body. I want you to imagine somebody walked up to you and handed you an envelope and it said, there's a million bucks in here. I'm giving it to you on one condition. You don't spend it, you invest it. Cool, I'll take it, right? Take it. But when you open it up, it's got Monopoly money in it. You go, what kind of a fool do you take me for? You actually think I'm going to walk into a bank and try to deposit Monopoly money? The person says, wait a minute, wait, wait. No, I'm serious, do it, do it. Just believe me. I know it looks like Monopoly money. But if you invest it, it'll work. And there's something about the person that you, you believe in, right? There's something persuasive in there. Which, I'll give it a try. And so you go into the bank, and you drop an envelope with a million bucks in Monopoly money, and the teller goes, thank you very much. Uh, what kind of account do you want this in? I guess, I don't know, whatever, money market, make up something. And you deposit it, and you get your receipt, and you walk out. You're like, what in the world just happened? What just happened? I mean, the guy gave me a million bucks in Monopoly money, and it, I was able to deposit it. I'm going to get a return on my investment. Right? Now, they're going to find it. They're going to figure it out sooner or later. Sure enough, month after month, you get the statements, man. You know, they look at your online. There it is, and it's gaining interest, or however you invest it. And the day comes, you know, down the road that you cash out the investment, and wow, I got a great return. You would think that was the best deal ever offered, right? What did God just do for us? He gave us something that in the scheme of eternity, I mean, you compare this to eternity, this is not much better than Monopoly money. But the opportunity to invest it in a way that brings eternal rewards, that's crazy. But it's the deal. It's the offer. There's a passage in 1 Timothy that I guess it just kind of struck me this week in a way it never has before. Um, in 1 Timothy 4.11, Paul is telling Timothy to charge those under his spiritual care to work with their own hands. That they might have something, might be able to provide for their family, have something to give to others and not be a burden. But these physical hands, the ability to impact lives, for better or for worse. Glorify God with your body. Using these flawed physical vessels in a way that impacts eternity. What a deal. What a deal. And it doesn't have to be some grand spiritual enterprise. And what is Paul telling Timothy? You've got a guy in the congregation that's a plumber. Tell him to be a really good plumber. Or you got a person in the, in the, that's a... That's a Teacher, tell them to be a really good teacher. Doing whatever is set before them to the glory of God allows us the possibility to impact people for eternity in whatever setting we find ourselves. What a mind-blowing opportunity. This envelope of monopoly money impacting eternity. So what the Lord is really saying is that what we do with our body counts. 
And it doesn't matter if it's in a courtroom where all the world can see, where everything is recorded, and everybody knows what is said and done, or if it's in the private intimacy of a sexual relationship, or anywhere in between. What we do with our physical bodies counts. We can either bring the Lord and ourselves dishonor and harm, or we can bring glory to His name. What an incredible opportunity is ours. May the Lord give us wisdom in the time frame that we have on this earth to use everything He has given us in such a way that it brings glory and honor to his name. I'll, 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 I'll just close with this. It's a really simple illustration. It's the Olympics time. I have to use at least one Olympic illustration, right? You know, right? You have to. It's one of the rules. Um, Paul talks about that Olympic glory. He's, in fact, we'll talk about it here in the Corinthian letters. Um, and he says that the, that, the, that the athlete, the champion, goes through all they go through. All they go through, right? By the way, most of what they go through consists of what? how they use their body, right? What they do or don't do with their body, right? The discipline, their training, it all comes down to what they do with their body, right? Paul says they do that for a crown of glory that fades. Temporal, just as temporal as they are. We do it, he says, for a crown that does not fade. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And as we, as we go through our day, Lord, uh, doing whatever it is we do in our day, we are confronted with a hundred opportunities, Lord. We're confronted with, with opportunities to sin. We're confronted with opportunities to serve. Uh, we're confronted with opportunities to bless. We're confronted with opportunities to curse. Um, we're confronted with opportunities to do things in a way that brings testimony to who you are, and there's opportunities to do things that bring discredit to your name, Lord. We have choices to make. And, Father, it all involves with what we do with this moral frame that you've given us, and that's pretty wild, Lord. It's true. So we ask, Father, you would give us wisdom, Lord, as we go through the week. Wisdom to use this incredible resource you have given us in our physical bodies, this marvelous tool, this asset, Lord, to do it in a way that builds your church, builds people up, draws people to you, Lord, and touches eternity. Give us that wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.